meeting new people, making friends, or simply breaking the ice can be a tricky affair. For many, an unbelievably daunting one. All of us have varying degrees of intro or extroversion, but no matter your level of comfort in navigating these social situations, the speed bump or mountain remains. There are, of course, folks that choose to live far, far off-grid. But I'd say, and this is pure speculation, 99% of people have come into contact with other human beings, and often with strangers. Some of us are shy. Some of us are socially awkward. I know I am. But where does this come from, really? What is the root cause of shyness or social anxiety? Again, I have no background in this, or any research whatsoever to back it up, but my first reaction is to say that, somewhere, deep down, it's about self-preservation. For example, what do we divulge to new partners, and when? When is it too early and run the risk of scaring someone away? On the converse, when is it too late and you run the risk of losing trust? We want to survive, to feel protected and secure. We do that by keeping ourselves insulated within the thicker, muscled parts of the herd. We don't want to say or do something that will get us ostracized or cast out. Even if we aren't malignant, aren't a threat to the order of society, of cliques, families, or individual relationships, we must be careful of what we say and how we say it. But, looking at it from the other side, how can we tell if someone is shy or if they're hiding something? Are there signs? Behaviors? They may be quiet, but do their eyes linger on you a bit longer than feels comfortable? How often do we know the difference between reservation and omission? And how do we know when it's too late? Ladies and gentlemen, the doctor is in, and the haunt is on. Chapter 6 Having skipped the safety meeting, he'd been to his fair share and could probably recite most of the script from memory. Greg Hughes showed up early for dinner and pushed his place setting forward to make room for his yellow legal pad. He was alone at the table. He watched his fellow cruisers file in and speak with employees who then directed them to their tables. Their evening wear, slacks and gowns and polo shirts, still retained the wrinkled suggestion of the long journey they'd taken, pressed into luggage. The table next to his, closest to the starboard exit, had already filled up. There was a couple holding hands over their menus, outfits from J. Crew and Ann Taylor Loft, respectively. The woman was voicing her curiosity about each item, while her partner nodded on every other appetizer. Greg pegged them for northern Illinois suburbanites, somewhere far enough away from Chicago to be safe, but close enough that they could still tell people they were from the city. Next to them, a pair of women sporting matching suntans hadn't touched the menu, 
but instead whispered to each other over the souvenir mermaid cocktail glasses they'd brought in with them. They kept looking over their shoulders toward the main entry doors, as if they were waiting for a celebrity's limo to arrive and spill out the red carpet. He guessed these women were Floridian, judging by the tans, and were in their mid to late 20s and probably had drone-like jobs, law clerks or receptionists or x-ray techs. They were both blonde and fit and attractive and were maybe within the seven-year window Greg granted himself when meeting women. Now in his 30s, Greg had learned to be discerning. Anything more than seven years difference in either direction meant the loss of mutual interests and cultural references. He wondered how old the librarian was. The other three men at the adjacent table had their backs to Greg, but judging by the board shorts, flip-flops, and wild animated hand gestures, he assumed these to be fraternity brothers, fifth-year graduates from Florida or Arizona State, who made a yearly pilgrimage to some sun-soaked destination to relive the glory days of sleeping off hangovers during tree climbing or demystifying the hipster or some other bullshit elective course. This was a game for Greg, making up backstories and statistics about other cruisers, then mentally awarding himself points when he got things right. In his career, he'd improved above 50%, but not by much. Also, the game helped Greg ride out waves of social anxiety, of navigating new interactions. He was used to traveling alone. He supposed that if he were married or had kids, his company would have no problem allowing him to bring guests, and this might even give his reviews a new angle, reach a market previously untapped. But for the tenure of his employment, he came aboard solo, and left the same way. This isn't to say he hadn't met people along the way. On most cruises, he made friends early on, usually at the bar or next to one of the pools, but not at his assigned dinner table. Although he knew that modern technology probably used some sort of algorithm to match different guests to their tables, like approximate age group and interests and disparate backgrounds, this sort of gathering always felt, to him, a bit forced. Like when his mother used to make him go to the megachurch with her, and the pastor would after a cursory invocation, asked the congregation to turn and introduce themselves to someone they didn't know. The dinners had always been relatively pleasant, though, the exception being the four-day Jamaica and back out of Mobile, Alabama. He was paired with a raging homophobic racist and his cowed wife from Sarasota. Greg had done his best to remain objective in his review, even though the spittle-inflected tirades against anyone not straight, white, or male begged for a block of text. This time around, he hoped for more pleasantness. But he would not be the first to make contact. Strangers disliked eagerness, shied away from it. And coming from a single man, there was really only one synonym, desperation. While waiting to see who he would be paired with, Greg began jotting down notes about the choices on the prefix menu, the efficiency and friendliness of the staff, and, of course, the ambiance and environment. The formal dining room near the bow of the Baroness was a sprawling, multi-tiered space with many cul-de-sacs and alcoves and balconies of tables that branched off from the main circular chamber via pale gold stairs that stretched and turned as if it had been designed by Escher. Each of these auxiliary spaces were empty, dim to barely visible running lights and cordoned off by wide velvet ropes attached to hooks on either side of the pass-throughs. 
The guests of the first formal dinner on the Baroness's second voyage were sequestered to the main level. A spiral of large, round tables where thick, bone-white tablecloths were presenting the dishes and floral arrangements from sliding with the soft lilt of the ship. The carpet beneath the tables was a rich blue, with ornate patterns of gold leaf twisting in and around itself like a bed of snakes. Light glinted on the champagne flutes and polished silverware from the spectacular, if gaudy, display above. A chandelier, probably the biggest most of the cruisers had ever sat beneath, reached for the walls. From a certain angle, the chandelier resembled a giant upside-down octopus or squid, its diamond-coated tentacles clinging to the ceiling. Between these tendrils, an array of matching, scaled-down versions of the same fixture circled like satellites, forming a five-pointed star. Greg watched the light's subtle sway, as if by invisible puppeteer strings, moving with the consistent urging of the tide, until a couple, maybe a few years older than Greg, approached. The man asked, Table nine? Greg said, You bet. After a cursory introduction, Murray and Austin were from Wisconsin, had two kids, and were on their second ever cruise. The couple began discussing their meal choices. Marie did most of the talking. Her companion was a bit more reserved, quiet, for a first night on a cruise. If they hadn't offered, Greg would have thought they looked Midwestern. Greg guessed she was a civil servant of some sort, with weeks full of rotating solid color blouses and pre-prepared gluten-free meals. The man had to be an accountant or tax assessor, drowning in emails and memos, who picked at the same gluten-free meals his wife had made but often trashed it in favor of Big Macs or stuffed crust pizza. The trio was soon joined by another, older couple, maybe early 60s, she with a flowing dress emboldened by repetitive palm fronds, he with a dinner outfit most likely tailored by Mr. Panama Jack. This was an easier guess. They were both retirees, he from the lumber or hardware business, and she, with her empty nest, from being a housewife. They gave only smiles in their names, Chad and Teresa. After a long day of traveling, embarking, taking the whole experience in, Greg found that most table guests stayed strangers until after the appetizer. Then the introductions, the conversations, began in earnest. What Greg really wanted to do was to ask his newfound dinner guests if anything had been left in their staterooms. Anything awkward or out of place, like maybe towels in suggestive shapes? And the strange blonde employee in the elevator, had they met him yet? The experience had unnerved him then, and Greg had been thinking about it ever since. The two cocktails before dinner hadn't been enough to get it out of his mind. But he was looking at more than two weeks worth of formal dinners with these folks. If everything was going fine with them, then he'd wind up being the outsider at the table, the weirdo. He would wait. After the rush died down and most of the cordoned off tables had been populated, a woman came rushing through the main entry doors, looking a bit flustered, and it took Greg only a second to register her face. The librarian. He watched her walk up to the hostess and move her lips. The hostess looked down, then pointed vaguely in Greg's direction. He searched for openings at other tables, but they were all full. She was coming toward his table. Table 9. 
There weren't nearly as many souls on this ship as there might normally be, but this was serendipitous. Had to be. Of all the assignments, he'd gotten the same table as her. The universe was looking out for him. Maybe. She had changed from the blue bikini and cover-up into a knee-length blue-and-white polka-dot dress, and as she approached, Greg saw that she had the gait and flush of the perpetually flustered, the always late. He found that intriguing, and he wanted to see more of that look. The librarian sat down behind the large floral centerpiece with a sigh. The last two empty seats flanked her. Had she seen him? Did their conversation in the elevator even make it onto her radar? He wished he could see her face. Fuck you, flowers, he thought. Before even gathering herself, the woman said, Hi, everyone. How are y'all doing? There were mumbles and smiles on either side of Greg. The man on his left, the presumed accountant, raised his water glass toward her. Carolyn, we're at the same table. That's wonderful, said the older woman on Greg's right. Then, to the whole table, as if she were letting the group in on something private, were neighbors. Carolyn, Greg thought, what a perfect name for a librarian. The librarian with the perfect name said, yep, across the hall. Come on now, the older woman said. We're going to be spending some meals together, a good many of them. And even though I've met you, we might as well all get our introductions out of the way and make way for some fun. Carolyn? Can you start? I'm Carolyn. This is my first cruise. I'm from Pittsburgh, and I work as a librarian. God, that's good, Greg thought. He didn't want to make any guesses about her. He just wanted her to tell him everything. He didn't know why she seemed different than other women. Hell, their conversation wasn't more than a minute long, but he'd felt something. Surely she hadn't. How could she? They hadn't even exchanged names only their occupations. And now her face was blocked by a centerpiece bouquet of kaleidoscopic flowers. Well, who are you and where are you all from? Carolyn asked, then added with a slight quiver in her voice, please? She had a schoolteacher sort of tone, as of trying her hardest to get kids to open up or find enthusiasm about algebraic nonsense. With her job, Greg assumed she'd led field trips and informational visits from local schools, so that made sense. The older man on Greg's right spoke first. I'm Chad. Uh, I'm from elbowing him in the ribs. His partner said, we are from South Carolina. I'm Teresa, and we're happily retired. Bingo, Greg thought. That's one point. He scrawled a line in the margin of his legal pad. From what? Carolyn asked. Medicine. Chad said. She was, too, on the other side. Not a housewife, Greg thought. No points. Billing, Teresa said. He stitched you up, and I made sure someone paid for it. Chad sold his practice, and we moved south a few years ago. Now we're just full-time grandparents. Her husband, Chad, said, You might not think it keeps us busy, but it does, even if they live in another state. We have so many souvenirs to buy. Well, how about that lovely couple across from us? Teresa asked. I love that blouse, by the way. Would you say that's mauve or violet? The woman said with a laugh, I have no idea. I guess I've always thought of it as dark cranberry. I'm Murray, and this is my husband. The accountant was acting a little cagey, had been since sitting down, 
kept looking around the room as if he were expecting something to jump out at him. But now that he was being addressed, he appeared to soften some. I'm Austin. My job isn't all that interesting. I'm a professor, well, a lecturer, at a community college. Then, as if wanting to move on before any more questions about his academic focus, said, She's got the cool job. Stop it, Marie said. Go on, tell them, Austin said. It's embarrassing. The royalties aren't, Austin said. Besides, we're all strangers here. Behind the bouquet, Carolyn blurted, Not for long! She finished this with a slow, nervous laugh. She was adorable. God damn those flowers, Greg thought. He wanted to move them, but doing so would bring all the attention to him. And he realized then that since the librarian arrived, he hadn't said a word, and no one had asked him to. Was it the fact that he was single? Was it his legal pad? He took it and put it under his seat. Either way, he was okay with that. He preferred being the fly on the wall for as long as he could. He expected, when they learned his profession, they'd have 20 questions. He was never good at introductions anyway. Always felt like the first day of middle school class or an AA meeting. I have a podcast, Marie said. Don't be shy, her husband followed and searched the room, probably looking for a server and another cocktail. She's got a podcast based on her books. You're a writer? Teresa asked, her voice almost a shout. Anything I've read? With downcast eyes, Marie said, Maybe. Not sure what sort of stuff you're into. Let's, uh, let's just say I'm in the romance genre. Teresa's husband asked, Like the torn muscle shirt and throbbing member sort of romance? And the librarian added, Erotica? Marie reddened. That's the stuff. Oh my, Teresa said. What's your last name? Holt, but I use a pen name. I started this, you know, to make a little extra money while I was still working at the courthouse, and it just kind of took off. A bona fide author, Chad said. Always wanted to write something myself. His wife, Teresa, interrupted. What's the name? Quietly, Marie said, Sylvia Penny. Across from her, Teresa slapped the table and said, I love your work. I do too, Carolyn said from behind her flower curtain. She reads erotica, Greg thought, and in his excitement had to make sure he hadn't said it aloud. No one was looking at him. It appeared as if Marie, in her embarrassment, was about to try and change the subject. But the sudden arrival of a server did it for her. He was dressed in a version of the same color scheme and pattern of the rest of Celebration Vacation's employees. Greg hadn't seen him walking up. It was like he just appeared behind the retirees from South Carolina. He was bald and dark-skinned, tall. He had a warm smile, and when he spoke, he had a soft, soothing voice the kind that would be perfect for audiobook recordings of children's stories. Hello, I am Anwar, and I will be your server for the duration of your voyage. Anwar, Carolyn said, like the Egyptian... Yes, ma'am, the server said, tapping his name tag. It listed his full name and place of origin, Egypt. The same as the former president of my country. What an interesting name, 
Teresa said, with authentic curiosity. Yes, when I was an infant, my family thought I resembled Mr. Sadat. The couples laughed, as did Carolyn. Greg liked her even more. She was smart, read what some folks might call smut, and had a grasp on world history. We will get to know each other much better while finding love on the waves. But for now, may I get you all something to drink? The rest of the table ordered, then the server turned to Greg. Everyone turned to him. For the first time, as if just realizing someone else was at the table, Carolyn peered around the flowers. Her face lit up when she looked at him. Greg felt a flutter in his stomach and fumbled over his words. I'll, I'll have a Scots, a, a Scotty, I mean, um, a Scotch. Thanks. With a nod, Anwar left the table, headed for the bar. But the eyes of the table were still on Greg. It was now his turn. He steeled himself. But before he could begin his awkward introduction, a man and woman had arrived to take the last two empty seats. Carolyn shifted closer to Teresa to make room. Both of the men already seated, Austin and Chad, began staring intensely at their menus, as if trying to avoid eye contact with the new arrivals. I am Laszlo, the man said. Call me lazy. He slid Carolyn's vacated chair out for his partner, who obliged and he scooted her in. The man was very muscular, wearing sunglasses on top of his head and a see-through mesh button-up shirt and silver pants, while the woman, tall and slender, wore a matching silver sequined cocktail dress that appeared more like a nighty. Laszlo went on. This is my beautiful woman, Zofia. Hi, everyone, Zofia said. Her voice was high, sharp, and subdued at once, like someone on the other end of a 900 number. Her accent was heavier than the man she had arrived with. Greg pegged them for Eastern European. Somewhere in the Baltics. Once seated, recognition came over Laszlo's face. My friend! Austin, not an accountant, but a lecturer, was still attempting to avoid eye contact, and appeared to flinch when an arm was thrown around his shoulders. But Laszlo wasn't done yet. He grabbed the large vase and pulled it off the table. Greg could hear the rustling of petals and stems as it was pushed near his feet. Iceman! On his right, Greg could feel and see the retired MD bristle. You find that ice machine, Iceman? Laszlo asked. Rather than wait for an answer, he leaned forward and shot a hand out toward Chad for a high five. Chad, in the most languid, unenthusiastic fashion, reciprocated. The wives on either side studied their husbands, then each other, as if trying to make sense of this newfound triad. Carolyn, however, was studying Zofia and her dress. Greg was too. Now that the flowers had been moved, he saw that her neckline was so low, so severe, it seemed to nearly reach the sequined hem beneath the table. Teresa, on his right, spoke first. You boys making friends already? Both Chad and Austin mumbled responses, but Laszlo spoke over them. We are shipmates now, no? The tension at the table was matched only by the absurdity. This was way better than whatever stories Greg could have made up in his head. Anwar returned with a small circular tray and began passing out drinks. When he came to the newcomers, Laszlo asked, You have milk? 
Yes, sir? A shamboard and milk for my lovely bride, Laszlo told him. Greg could hear the sound of him slapping Zofia's thigh beneath the table. That and the drink order made Greg's empty stomach clench. Shamboard, a raspberry liqueur, would produce basically a spiked strawberry milk. Dairy and alcohol were, to Greg, curdling, unfortunate bedfellows. Myself, Lazo said, champagne and vodka. Enwar asked, You would like me to bring you two cocktails before the appetizer course, sir? Just one. Mix them. The server paused, hesitating as if trying to make sense of the order and, being unable to, went away. Greg then saw that everyone's eyes were on him again, as Laszlo had obviously shifted his attention. I said, Who are you, man? I'm... Greg started, realizing he was gripping the empty scotch glass tighter than necessary. Uh, I'm Greg. The tension was broken briefly, while Greg exchanged handshakes and little waves around the table. Laszlo's palm was slick, clammy, while Carolyn's lingered in Greg's longer than necessary. As did their eye contact. This was only severed when Laszlo began asking about her. Carolyn gave the same speech she had earlier, all the while casting looks and smiles occasionally to Greg. He returned them in kind, feeling a rush each time. After returning with the sickening cocktails, Anwar took appetizer and dinner orders. The table lapsed into individual conversations. The couples began speaking to each other in low tones about schedules and events and whatever else had gotten them excited for the coming weeks. When the newcomers began whispering in each other's ears, giggling, Greg saw Laszlo's hand slip underneath the tablecloth again. Zofia's face took on a crimson hue. The rest of the table watched, not in horrifying silence, but very close to it. This was not a pro or a con. Greg had found another entry for the the what-the-fuck column on his legal pad. Once they'd finished eating and their plates had been cleared, Laszlo set two items in the empty space before him. Cigarettes and a bag of gummy bears. When he lit one, Zofia slammed her hand down and tried to take the smoke from him. There is no smoking in here, she said. Nearby tables had tuned in. It is okay, I am VIP, Laszlo said. See, I am member of Fun Club, all access. He pulled out the cruise badge and displayed it for the group, then smiled at Greg as if he were in on the joke. Holding the cigarette over his head, out of her reach, Zofia kept lunging, her dress shifting with the movement. Greg knew what was coming, and he couldn't look away. They were like a small tornado, having touched down in the middle of a now-hushed dining room. And then it happened. A single nipple broke free from its sequined confines. Everyone at the table, Carolyn included, stared at the malfunction and reveal, then down at the tablecloth, again and again. I told you not to wear that dress, Laszlo said. Giving up, Zofia responded, I told you not to embarrass me. With that, she stood up, gave Greg and the others at table nine a wry smile and simple wave, not bothering to readjust her dress. She snatched up the bag of gummy bears and, without another word, stomped away. The collective heads of the dining room followed her animated exit. The fraternity brothers at the next table seemed particularly interested in tracking her.
Laszlo called after her once, like the lead in an off-Broadway production. Zofia! Once she was out of sight, he dropped the cigarette butt into a half-empty glass of water. Not his own. Women, Laszlo said, punching Austin softly in the shoulder. Can't live with them, and you can't throw them overboard. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Ghost Modernist. New episodes drop every Tuesday at midnight. Now, here's another apology for a terrible Eastern European accent. The list of things I'm good at is very short, and accents are not on it. If you can get beyond that, and you are still enjoying the show, please follow on the platform you're using. Rate and review The Ghost Modernist on Apple Podcasts, please. Even if you don't listen on that platform, it does help get this into the charts and into the ears of more listeners. If you haven't done so already, tell your friends and family about the show. Let's scare them, too. The theme song for The Ghost Modernist was provided by Adrian Carcheri. As always, remember, there are two types of people in this world, the haunters and the haunted. Which one are you?